Well, if you cut chapters 11 through 14 out of Revelation, it would be like watching a football game without a program. You'd enjoy the action, but you couldn't identify any of the players. You'd know the what, but not the who. For these chapters give us a roster of the end times. The rebel forces include the dragon. We talked about him last week. The beast, his accomplice, the false prophet. Their headquarters, the city of Babylon. And a false religious system that John refers to as the great whore. Not quite a flattering uh, nickname, quite frankly. We'll talk about that in chapter 17. Whereas God's troops call them his witnesses, they include 144,000 Jews, two Jerusalem prophets, three angelic messengers, one like the Son of Man who carries in his hand a sharp sickle in the armies of heaven. If you recall, chapter 13 focused on the bad guys, particularly the beast. And like any good roster, any good program, it even gave us his number. Six, six, six. Whereas now in chapter 14, we find God's team. And that's what we want to investigate, investigate tonight. And it's only fitting that the very first person that is listed on God's team is our best player, our captain, our coach, our general manager, our team owner, our everything all rolled into one. John begins chapter 14. Then I looked and behold a lamb standing on Mount Zion. John sees Jesus. After all John's visions, this book, the Revelation, remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This isn't the revelation of the lamps or the beast or the whore or the seals or the 666. And all too often we get caught up in the peripherals. In doing so, we miss Jesus. No, understand that this book is the revelation and the glory of Jesus. And we realize from John's writing here in this book that Jesus is no longer the humble Galilean preacher who walked the dusty trails in first century Israel. No, he is now the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has been glorified. He has been exalted Today, all creation is under his feet. This is the revelation of Jesus that John gives us. Jesus is the lamb that roars like a lion, and he is the lion that bears the scars of a sacrificial lamb. Here, John sees the lamb, but notice his posture and his place. He is standing on Mount Zion. That Jesus is standing tells us a lot. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13 there we're told that the Father God says to his son Jesus, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Well, for nearly 2,000 years now, that's where Jesus has been. He's been sitting at God's right hand. But now we find him standing. He stands to his feet. He stretches his legs. He flexes his muscles. Jesus is finally getting ready to stride and to ride and to make war with this wicked world. And notice where Jesus stands. He is on Mount Zion. Mount Zion is one of several hills that make up the city of Jerusalem. It's where David built his capital. Over time, Zion became the name for the entire city. 
And here John sees the Lamb standing in Jerusalem. He is standing in the place of kings. His intent now is to rule. And it's no accident he has returned to the scene of the crime. For you remember, Jesus was crucified where? In Jerusalem. And this is God's issue with the rebel planet. The world mocks and scoffs and neglects and despises the cross. Jesus Christ bled for us. Why aren't we willing to be led by him? Hey, don't get upset later in this chapter when it speaks of hell and blood and judgment. What would you think if you sacrificed your son for me and then I spit in his face? You see, God is just and righteous in all he does. Revelation 14 verse 1 is such a powerful picture. It needs to shape how we see Jesus today. For one day soon the lamb will stand where he once was slaughtered. He'll be glorified where he was crucified. He'll be worshipped where he was hated. He'll rule from a throne where he hung from a tree. Where Jesus showed mercy, he'll bring about justice. When we think of the Jesus in our future, the Jesus that every man will meet and face and bow before, don't think of Mary's infant. Don't think of Jesus washing his disciples' feet or Jesus silent before his accusers. No, think of Jesus here in all his regal glory, standing on Mount Zion, ready to put his foot down in judgment. And yet before the judgment, one last call to repent goes out. You could call chapter 14 the last chance chapter. It is a last call for salvation. You know, today the church preaches the gospel. But in the last days, God will use other messengers. The church will have been raptured. We'll be in heaven with Jesus. But God will have other means to get out the word. Verse 1. For with Jesus was 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. And we met these guys before in chapter 7. These were Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were marked with the father's name. When I was 10 years old, I went off to football camp one summer. And mom wrote my name in my underwear. Right there in the elastic band around the top of my underwear, she wrote my name in every single pair of my underwear. You see, you can share soap and T-shirts and even toothbrushes, but you don't share underwear. In the cabin chaos that was football camp, you needed to identify whose was whose. And so she wrote my name in the elastic waistband. And that's what God does in the last days. It'll be crazy days in cabin earth. So God writes his name on these 144,000 followers. God's enemies know they belong to God. It's protection. This makes them indestructible witnesses, super sharers of the gospel. Now remember at the end of chapter 13, folks who worship the beast, they have their allegiance sealed with a mark in their right hand or in their forehead. The number was 666. Here's the godly antithesis. His witnesses God's witnesses are dearer to God than Satan's followers are to him. So they're sealed, not just with a number, but they're sealed with God's holy name, having his Father's name written on their foreheads. Verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven. The scene now shifts from Mount Zion back to 
back to heaven. John hears a voice like the voice of many waters, or literally like a roaring waterfall, and like the voice of loud thunder, the boom of a thunderclap. Recall in chapter 1, this is how John described the voice of Jesus. He speaks with authority. His voice drowns out all other opinions. John writes, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Now, the Lamb and the 144,000 witnesses are standing on Mount Zion. So who is this singing in heaven? These are folks who believed in Jesus during the Great Tribulation. And they've been martyred for their faith. And why do we know that? Because only the 144,000 can relate to what they've endured. It says this is the song that, that that could be learned except by only the 144,000. This is the same group, these martyrs, that were seen in chapter 6 asking the question, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? But now they're asking no longer. Instead, they're singing. For the sought-after judgment is about to be dispensed. You see, the vast majority of heaven's population, the church, was spared the great tribulation. That's why only the 144,000 Jewish witnesses can sing this song and can relate to what these martyrs have been through. And John says of the 144,000, these are the ones who were not defiled with women for they are virgins. See, apparently these witnesses were men on a mission. They didn't have time for marriage or for family for domestic concerns. I mean, how can you celebrate an anniversary? How can you coach Little League when God readies himself to judge the world? Remember, this is God's last call, and these are his ambassadors. The eternal destiny of men is hanging in the balance at this point. God's witnesses will need to be single-minded. They're pledged to preach, not to date. Again, this is why the 144,000, not the church, are the only souls who know the song of these tribulation believers. This is a different day, different conditions. And John adds, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. I like that. Now surely these 144,000, they live at a different time and they minister under different conditions. But this is something that should be true of of us all, of all his followers. We need to follow the lamb wherever he goes. I like this poster. Jesus tells the guy, no, I'm not talking about Twitter. I literally want you to follow me. Do you follow the lamb wherever he goes? And then verse 4 tells us, these were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. These 144,000 Jewish witnesses were saved at the beginning of God's last call. They were the first fruits of his final harvest. Now they're leading others to salvation. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. These men are true blue. They are impeccable witnesses in perilous times. I mean, it's like in baseball. Your best pitcher is usually your closer. And here God raises up an army of closers for one last call to the world to repent. 
But that's not all. That's not God's only method of end times broadcasting. For as the clock winds down, as time runs out, the lamb pulls out all the stops. You see Jesus' heart? He wants as many who can be saved to be saved. And so he goes to one more effort. Verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. And this should speak volumes to you and me. Hey, one day, God will use angels to proclaim the good news. Angels are bold, and they're obedient, and they're accurate, and they're powerful. Hey, I'll bet you angels, I bet you no angel has ever been scared of his boss and was afraid to actually share the gospel with his friend. I bet you no angel has ever been too busy to share the gospel. They're far more efficient than today's best evangelists. And yet for now, guess what? God chooses to use us. Jesus loves you. And he wants you to join in sharing the truth of his word to the people around you. God sees value in using folks saved by grace to share his grace. This is perhaps our one and only advantage over the angels. And yet as the church goes up, God will use angels. Like those airplanes that pull banners over Turner Field during a Braves game. The angel in verse 6, he flies through the heavens preaching the everlasting gospel. The Lamb's last call goes through the 144,000 Jews and through the two witnesses and now three angels. Verse 8. And another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now as Jerusalem has been headquarters of God's kingdom on earth, Babylon has always been Satan's headquarters. The Bible, you could say, is a tale of two cities. And here the second angel, he proclaims the crumbling of Satan's empire. In other words, the devil's days are numbered. Verse 9, and then a third angel followed them. Notice the first angel shared God's salvation. The second, Satan's devastation. Now the third, the sinner's destination. This angel is saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Boy, God usually tempers his judgments with mercy, but not here. People who have resisted the witness of the church and now God's last call are sentenced to the full strength, the 100 proof, the undiluted wrath of God. And apparently the final straw is when they receive the mark of the beast in their forehead or on their hand. Whether it's a barcode or a microchip or a vein scan or an infrared tattoo or some technology not even invented yet. Folks will know that this is more than just a convenient commerce. It's paid for by a pledge to the beast. Rather than trust Jesus Christ, they put their faith in Antichrist. And this is... The final rejection of God's mercy. 
And so this third angel warns. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now up until now, John's vision has shown us the glories of heaven and we rejoiced. We've also seen God's judgments on earth and we've shuddered in regards to that. But now John gives us a glimpse of the torments of hell. And yet hell isn't a message we hear much of today. In fact, some churches downplay the reality of a literal hell. A.W. Tozer once wrote, The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consequences of millions. Hey, this third angel tries to convince mankind that hell is real. He tells the inhabitants, he tells us the inhabitants of hell are tormented with fire and brimstone. The smoke of their torment ascends forever, and they have no rest day or night. I'm not sure where the Jews got their information, but the Jewish Talmud reads, the fire of hell is 60 times as hot as the fire on earth. Well, this seems to correspond here because here we're told that people in hell are tormented by fire by hot coals, by stifling smoke. In verse 10, the Greek word translated brimstone refers to sulfur flashes. Think of flash pots at a rock concert. In hell, you're bombarded with many explosions. Hell is like living in the mouth of an erupting volcano. The heat is unbearable. Its flames blister and burn. Layers of soot cause acute suffocation. Everybody in hell will grope for air like a chronic asthma sufferer. And notice its punishment is eternal. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Is it any wonder that hell's residents have no rest day or night? Imagine no rest. No rest ever. You can never rest in hell. Hell is like a constant traffic jam. Hell is like a hemorrhoidal attack in a world with no preparation age. Hell is like an argument with your spouse. It just never, ever ends. And there's no pills to pop in hell. Everybody's stressed. Everybody's depressed. It's no rest day or night. Everyone in hell will be plagued by remorse. It's been said, one of the horrors of hell is the undying memory of a misspent life. And hell is void of any hope. Your status will never change. In Dante's Inferno, a sign over hell reads, He who enters abandons all hope. And I think the worst of hell's torments is that it all occurs, and I quote, in the presence of the holy angels and the Lord. I interpret that to mean that while folks agonize in hell, they're still aware of what's happening in heaven. It's like a one-way glass. Residents of hell see into heaven, but heaven doesn't see into hell. It's bad enough to be tormented forever, but it all happens while you're constantly gawking at the pleasures you'll never be able to enjoy. This third angel warns the world of a literal hell. He, along with the lamb, doesn't want to see anyone go there. 
And then verse 12, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. There's no rest for those in hell, but those who put their faith in Jesus will rest with the Lord forever. In contrast to hell, heaven is like a quiet afternoon in the hammock with your phone on silent. It's rest for all eternity. And this is why we need to get busy right now, telling folks about Jesus, shining the light, being a witness for the truth. Why? Because we'll have eternity to rest. We only have a few short hours left to do God's will. I'm sure most of us believe in a literal hell. If so, how can we be so nonchalant about the people that are going there? And then verse 14 tells us, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Here's King Jesus. And he's carrying a swing blade. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And then verse 16, So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. This is the final harvest. Just before the last battle, one final surge of souls will give their lives to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus told a parable. The parable of the wheat and the tares. That both the wheat and the tares, both the believers and the unbelievers, would grow up side by side. Their separation wouldn't occur until the harvest. Judgment doesn't come until the end of the age. When Jesus puts in his sickle in its first pass... He raptures the wheat or the church. But in his second thrust of the sickle, this is an act of judgment. We're told then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Spiritually speaking, sin is like fruit. Let it hang around and it ripens for judgment. And this is what happens in verse 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Grapes are crushed. They're squished in the wine press. They're often stomped. And in the Bible, the great wine press is an idiom for God's judgment. Verse 20 and the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. Notice it's not wine that results from the winepress, it's blood. Jesus is crushing the rebels who have defied his rule by throwing in this sharp sickle. Here John has an actual time and an actual place in mind. You see, this is all leading up to what we call the battle of Armageddon. There the blood of evil men will fill up a valley, 1,600 furlongs, or literally 200 miles long, 
Blood will rise to the horse's bridle. It's interesting, 200 miles is the approximate length of the Holy Land. From the Golan to the Dead Sea. And here John foresees the day when the valleys of Israel and especially Jerusalem will become a blood-stained battlefield. With the close of chapter 14, the warning is over and the judgments begin. Revelation 15 and 16 is about seven bowls of judgment that get poured out on planet earth. Understand, these aren't bowl games. God don't play. The lamb goes bowling here and the rebels on the earth are the pins. John begins, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Now remember, there are 21 judgments mentioned in Revelation. In chapter 6, the seven seals are broken. In chapters 8 and 9, seven trumpets blast their judgments. We're told of seven thunders, but we're not told what they were. But now in chapter 16, seven bowls brimming with judgment are poured out. And these bowls hold the worst plagues yet. You remember in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. In other words, this judgment will be so severe that it can't last forever. It will cripple the earth to the point where it can no longer sustain life. These are the bold judgments, and they must be toward the end. For after they're administered, no one could live much longer. You could title Revelation 15 and 16, When God's Gloves Come Off. For from this time onward, God will no longer cushion his blows. He'll land a flurry of combination punches. God is going for the knockout now. By chapter 15, God has a rebellious planet on the ropes. Seven bowls are what drop it to the canvas. Verse 2, and I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24 teaches us something very interesting. That the temple on earth was actually a small scale model of God's throne room in heaven. And one of its features, one of the features of the temple was a bronze laver. A bowl of water where the priests would tidy up before they administered in the temple. Now here in verse 2, John sees its heavenly prototype. I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. It's a sea or a body of water, but this sea is motionless. It's like glass. It has a fiery tint as if it's stained with blood. And he sees those who have the victory over the beast over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. In the earthly temple, the priests washed in the laver, but on earth, cleansing was needed. But here, here in heaven, we're already clean. And thus, we stand on what we once washed in. Our lives testify to God's promises. Today, we're washed in the water of God's word. But in heaven, we'll already be clean and we'll stand on that body of water. Here are martyrs who suffered for Christ's sake in the tribulation. They stand as a testimony to God's salvation. John sees these people, and I quote, who have the victory over the beast. But you say, wait a minute, the Antichrist just put them to death. How can you say they're victorious? 
realize that victory in the Christian life is sometimes won by escaping tribulation, but at other times it's won by enduring tribulation. God gives the church an escape, whereas these believers endure tremendous suffering. Verse 3, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Now, you can check out the lyrics to Moses' song in Exodus chapter 15. Here, verses 3 and 4 provide the lyrics of the Lamb. But before we look at the lyrics, I need to clear up some confusion about heaven's music. For notice these musicians on the glassy sea are there with harps of God. And I know what you're thinking. No, Sandy, please tell me, please, we're not going to be in heaven playing harps. The stereotype can't be, it can't be true that we're going to be sitting around heaven all day listening to the strumming of boring harps. That's torture, not heaven. Don't worry. This week I did some research. I looked up Vine's Dictionary of New Testament Words and I looked up this Greek term, kithara, and its translation, harps. Here it's translated harps, but understand it can also be translated Guitars. Breathe easy, my friends. For the guys on the glassy sea might just be jamming with the lamb with electric guitars, with Les Pauls and Stratocasters. Jesus is the rock that doesn't roll, thus, there's got to be a little rock and roll in heaven. I will say this everybody in heaven is harping on Jesus. I promise you they are. He's all that heaven talks about. And they have no idea why we're so silent. They're waiting on us to join in his praise. And here's what they sing. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. God is about to pour out bowls of scalding judgment. Wicked men are going to blaspheme God, but heaven's inhabitants will praise him for these same judgments. His ways are just and true. He alone is holy. You know, it's interesting, the same response, you see the same response in a courtroom. The judge walks in, and what happens to the guilty? He starts to squirm. Whereas what happens to the victim? He takes heart. The judge walks in, and there's two reactions in the room. One person squirms, and the other person rejoices. And the same is true when Jesus comes back. As the threat begins to unfold, as the revelation begins to take place, there are people who will squirm. All of heaven will rejoice. And here justice is about to be meted out. Verse 5. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. These angels are wearing priestly garb. 
And then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. These bowls are sloshing over with red hot wrath. It's judgment day, man. And notice the fireworks in heaven. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Heaven literally chokes on the smoke of God's wrath. In that excellent Bible commentary, chapter by chapter, the author writes, The temple in heaven is filled with smoke as the earth below is about to be smoked. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Chapter 16 is lights out for this wicked world. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And so the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth. And a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. I've read that if a lithium battery gets planted under the skin, and if it ever breaks, the lithium causes a vile sore. Here these abscesses are somehow related to the mark that people accept in their right hand or in their forehead. At one time, legions worshipped the beast. They were proud of this mark, but now their mark of allegiance has turned into a pustuous, cankerous, festering sore. Another possibility, this foul and loathsome sore. These lesions could have something to do with nuclear radiation. John Hersey, in his book Hiroshima, he paints a vivid picture of the survivors of those first nuclear blasts. He writes, faces were wholly burned. Eye sockets were hollow. Fluid from melted eyes ran down cheeks. Mouths were mere swollen, pus-covered wounds. Like here, the victims broke out with running sores and died slow, painful, torturous deaths. Another possibility? These sores could be a mass outbreak of melanoma, skin cancer caused by an overexposure to the sun's radiation. Some of the previous judgments have taken place. We'll see that the fourth bowl gives power to the sun to scorch humanity. In this day, even 100 sunblock won't help. We need to watch out. Another bowl is emptied in verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. This is Greenpeace's worst nightmare. It makes the Gulf oil spill look like a baby's drool. This is an ecological disaster of unparalleled proportion. All of Earth's oceans are now poisoned. Fish seals plankton all die the world launches a massive save the whales campaign but to no avail waters at once teemed with life now that life is dead for some of you this will be sad no more sushi in revelation chapter 8 verse 8 something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. Something like a great mountain was thrown into the sea. We discussed the possibility of the earth being impacted by a meteorite or an asteroid. It's interesting, the mineral composition of an object from space would be very high in iron. 
And it could be that the iron interjected into the oceans turns the water's blood red. Of course, there are other possibilities for this plague. Red tide is a phenomenon caused by a saltwater parasite. It turns the ocean red and kills the fish. Ironically, the organism has a nickname. It's called the sail from hell. The possible doomsday scenarios are endless. How it happens is conjecture. That it happens is certainty. And then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Now, this is why these bowl judgments have to occur within a few days, maybe a couple of weeks of Jesus' return. I mean, human beings can only live a maximum of 10 days without water. If you take the bottled waters and all the Coca-Colas and add them to what man can drink, then maybe we'll last a few more weeks. But without any water, the earth's inhabitants can't survive for long. Not any longer than a month after this third angel pours out his bowl of wrath. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. In the wake of this suffering, we wonder how a loving God can exact such a severity. You know, our tendency is to forget what this world did to deserve the judgment in the first place. God, though, doesn't forget. This Christ-rejecting world has innocent blood on its hands. You need to know that. Since just 1980, 1.3 billion unborn innocent children have been aborted on planet Earth. 1.3 billion people. That would be 16% of today's population if those kids had been allowed to live. For every five people you meet, there's one person who's missing because of man's selfishness in his sin and his brutality. And abortion is just one cause of the blood on the world's hands. Think of the wars and the genocide and the vice and the hatred. It all cries out for God's vengeance. Hey, we might get squeamish in the face of judgment, but not God. His judgments are just and true. You are righteous, O Lord. God doles out their just due. John writes. And heaven isn't finished defending God's righteous wrath. In verse 7, John writes, And I heard another, maybe an angel, from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Don't make the mistake of seeing just one side of God's heart. Yes, he's kind. Yes, he's benevolent. He's merciful and gracious. But his mercy comes at a steep price. God decreed that the wages of sin would be death. This is the price of God's mercy. Someone has to die for us. And that someone is Jesus. Understand, God focused all that we deserved on Jesus. When God sees the child molester and the wife beater and the rapist and the serial killer and the pimp, he gets angry. He gets upset. And yet God stored up all of that wrath 
that deserved to be vented on human beings. He stored it all up for one strategic moment where he vented it. At the cross, he poured out all his wrath on his only son. The hammer intended for sinners fell on Jesus. Why? So that God could treat us with mercy, not judgment. And yet, if you reject Jesus, if you act as if the price God paid is no big deal, then you put yourself right back under God's judgment. But don't blame God. It's not his fault. As the angel from the altar cries out, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And then verse 8, then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. Oh, trust me, global warming will be a huge problem one day. And this global warming is man-made for sure. Our sin will bring on God's judgment. Say a meteorite rips through the ozone and leaves a hole. The sun would then turn into a blowtorch and scorch the planet like a prairie fire. God's wrath is heating up. Verse 9, and men were scorched with great heat. Now you'd think after all of this, people would repent. People would ask for forgiveness and cry out for God's mercy. You would think. Instead, they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. God obviously has the power to stop these plagues. But people in this day will be in complete defiance. Even in the face of judgment, the world shakes its fist in God's face and hurls insults at him. How arrogant. And then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Notice God is ordering some precision strikes against deliberate targets. And this angel has the beast in his scope. He's commanded to take out his throne. And his kingdom became full of darkness. It's lights out for the beast. Thick darkness engulfs the earth. It's so dark that the sufferers can't perceive their own beyond their own blisters and their own sores. And so they flail about in agony. Verse 10. They gnawed their tongues because of their pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. This seems unfathomable. Why not repent? Why not give in? Man, why not tap out at this point and surrender to God? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 gives us a clue. It tells us that people at this time will have believed, and I quote, a strong delusion. Not just a lie, but the lie. The age-old lie. You recall how Satan tempted Eve? He convinced her that God was trying to stunt her growth by withholding that forbidden fruit. He said, if you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Isn't it amazing that, that everything God created is content to be God's creation? Except man, we're the only ones that want to be like God. We're the only ones who aren't content with our place in the universe and want to be like God. 
And Eve saw, follow, saw that following Satan, at least in her mind, she thought that following Satan was a means to enlightenment. And understand, the world today has already been conditioned to believe that lie. Right now, Christianity is postured as the one repressive, intolerant religion. Christianity is what's responsible for 2,000 years of war and hatred and bigotry and prejudice, according to this world. Satan is the one that will give you enlightenment. The Bible manipulates by greed and represses freedom and fosters hate, or so we're told. Only a Neanderthal takes the Bible seriously. Here's what's being said today. Biblical Christianity is holding society back. Just shed its shackles and follow the God within. That's the lie of Satan. That you can be like God. You can be your own God. This is the path of enlightenment today. And all of a sudden, what's happened today is that God is the bad guy and Satan is the good guy. This is the strong delusion that will fall over the earth in the last days. This is why even in the face of all of these judgments, man will refuse to repent. Verse 12 tells us, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, from this point on, the stage is set for the final battle. Again, we call it the Battle of Armageddon. It's a clash between the armies of the world and the army of Jesus Christ. And one of the major players in this battle to end all battle are the kings of the east. Daniel 11 is another prophecy that sees the same event. When the Antichrist invades Israel, he'll be attacked by Syria from the north and Egypt from the south. But to no avail, the only hindrance to his plans, to the plans of the beast, is news of armies who are approaching from the east. Is this the Chinese? Is this a confederation of nations? All we know is that how they, all we know is, that, is how they reach the battlefield. They march into the plain of Megiddo through a dried up riverbed. Traditionally, the river Euphrates is the boundary between east and west. It's 1,800 miles long. It places, at places, it's two-thirds of a mile wide, 30 feet deep. This great riverbed will be the highway to hell in the last days. This is the road that the eastern armies will take to Armageddon. They'll come up through the dried-up Euphrates. It's interesting, in 1990, Turkey finished a dam whereby they can now shut off the headwaters to the Euphrates. The Ataturk Dam may be the means that aids the kings of the east in their march to Megiddo. Verse 13, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon or Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. This is so gross. Frog-like demons coming out of a person's mouth just makes you want to croak. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the ends of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day 
of God Almighty. These demons deceive the world leaders. They coax the nations to the final showdown with God. Jesus speaks in verse 15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon, or literally Mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is the, a city in northern Israel. It's on the southern boundary of the Valley of Jezreel. It's the site of numerous historical battles. It was where Deborah and Barak uh, fought against the Midianites. It's where the story of Gideon played out. It's where Saul died in battle. It was where General Allenby won a great victory in World War I. Today, there happens to be an Israeli Air Force base in the middle of the valley. Its fighter jets fly sorties to Syria and Iran. When Napoleon Bonaparte saw the expansive plain of Megiddo, it was reported that he said, all the armies of the world could maneuver for battle here. Well, one day they will. The term Battle of Armageddon is a misnomer, really. Megiddo is simply the staging area for the armies of the world. The real prize is Jerusalem. They'll use Megiddo to stage their armies so that they can come down through the valley, the Jordan Valley, through and down to Jerusalem. See, the final conflict is really the Battle of Jerusalem. And we'll talk about it in two weeks in Revelation 19. Verse 17 tells us, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Now again, notice the target, the air. And this is significant. For you remember who Ephesians 2 verse 2 calls the prince of the power of the air. Satan. It's why Satan has such influence on music and media and airwaves and Wi-Fi. He spread so much of his filth through the air. He's the prince of the power of the air. And apparently this seventh and final bold judgment is aimed at Satan himself and his vast domain. God is going to defeat the devil at the very pinnacle of his power. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. Reminds us of Jesus' words from the cross. It is finished. On the cross, Jesus bought back the creation. He paid the price. Now he takes possession. And with this final bowl, Jesus evicts the squatters and he takes hold of what belongs to him and has since that day on Mount Calvary. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. This quake blows up the Richter scale. Finally, the big one hits. And the epicenter isn't the San Andreas Fault in Los Angeles. It's the city of Jerusalem. And now the great city was divided into three parts. Today, Jerusalem is a divided city. East Jerusalem is Arab. West Jerusalem is Jewish. But you think Jerusalem is divided now. Here, God splits it in three. And this earthquake not only impacts Israel, there's a ripple effect. We're told, and the cities of the nations fail. 
this geological event apparently is enormous, for it impacts cities all around the world. Imagine New York and London and Rome and Beijing and Moscow and Tokyo. All these cities now are in ruins. John mentions the impact of this strike on one city particularly. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. This is Satan's headquarters, and she is made to gulp down a swig of God's fierce wrath. It's interesting that all of the ancient calendars operated on 12 30-day months, or an annual total of 360-day years. And yet today's year is a solar year. It's an asymmetrical 365 and a quarter days. We know that something must have tipped the earth's axis. What caused the wobble? Geologists speculate that in earth's past, we took a direct hit from a cosmic projectile, a meteor. Something knocked the planet off its hinges. And if that has happened before, and apparently it has then it can certainly happen again. That's what we're reading about here. And then verse 20, then every island fled away. I mean, the heat from the fourth bowl will melt the polar caps. Scientists say that if that happens, sea levels will rise 200 feet instantly all across the globe. Today's coastal cities will completely disappear. Your property in the North Georgia mountains will be coastline, beach property. And the mountains were not found, we're told. Expect tidal waves, expect tsunamis when the continental plates shift. All the earth's topography is in for a radical facelift. Verse 21. And great hail fell from heaven upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent. A talent was an ancient Hebrew measurement, the equivalent of about 100 pounds. Think 100-pound hailstones. I remember when my brother lived in Dallas, Texas, he complained about the hail the size of golf balls denning his pickup truck. But imagine hailstones the size of a beach ball or bigger. And there are all kinds of theories of what might cause such a phenomenon. Just don't miss the obvious. Recall the Old Testament penalty for blasphemy? What was it? What was the Old Testament penalty for blasphemy? It was stoning. And here, heaven is the one that's throwing the rocks. The vile, the wicked world has blasphemed God. They've mocked God and His Son, Jesus And God is now responding with a punishment that fits the crime. The earth is getting stoned for its blasphemy. And yet despite it all, verse 21, men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. They failed to get the point. Rather than repent, they stiffen their necks. They dig in their heels. They continue in their diehard rebellion. You see, the religion of the Antichrist is follow your heart. But you make that mistake, and you'll go straight to hell. Don't follow your heart. Follow God. 
Let God give you a new heart. God's bowls aren't games. God don't play. Don't get bowled over. Repent. Turn to Jesus while you can.